I think so often we get so caught up in terms of like these five-year plans and these 10-year plans and like, you know, blah, 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 blah. And my argument has really become, you know, like, how do you, how do you plan for a person you haven't yet become? It's very difficult, right? Like, and I think that's how people end up waking up 10 years down the line and they're like is this my life you know what I mean like is this really what I thought it would be and it's like not their fault it's just because like so often you're deprived of the opportunity and the time to just think about who you actually are now and it's more so you're still living a model based on a past version of yourself and you haven't been given the opportunity to kind of like take stock of where you actually are and make adjustments to where you actually want to be Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. We're back with part two of my conversation with speaker and strategist and my good friend, Kristen Turner. As deputy director of Women Vote, the super PAC affiliated with Emily's List, the nation's largest resource for pro-choice Democratic women in politics, Kristen is very busy during the selection season, and I am just so grateful that she took the time out earlier this year to share her story with me and the rest of you. And I have to thank you all for being here. Full transparency, because I recorded this episode and part one before I even released the podcast, I did not have the best podcasting practices in place. Basically, no mic and definitely not the best headphones. So please excuse my beginner podcasting ways, but cheers to growth because we are moving forward. We are learning all the podcasting techniques. I'm excited. (laughs) And fortunately, Kristen's message is just so important that I think you guys are going to love it no matter what. So in the first episode, we learned about Kristen's thoughtful definition of success. After Kristen turned down her big law firm offer, graduated from Harvard Law School and took the summer to just reconnect with herself, she began looking for job opportunities. And through some of the social entrepreneurial work that she was doing, she was connected with a young, ambitious college student at Harvard who recently won a startup competition for his company aimed at fixing the bankruptcy system in America. Kristen described the company as TurboTax for bankruptcy. It's actually called Upsolve. It's doing great. And she was very drawn to the mission and the founder's tenacity and passion for making a social impact through technology. At the time, they needed an attorney, but they actually didn't have any money to pay her. So she went to Harvard to ask for a fellowship. That way she could have a salary while working on this really important endeavor. So naturally, she made her case And she emphasized the value of getting behind a project like this. Harvard said yes, and they created a one-year fellowship for Kristen. She embraced the opportunity. And I'm just thinking, wow, like so inspirational. I mean, if you've listened to part one, then it's probably not surprising. This is very Kristen. (laughs) We're definitely seeing a pattern here. Talk about charting your own path. All right, so let's get to the conversation where Kristen talks about this opportunity, how she views her career trajectory, and some of the other pivotal moments in her journey. Can't wait for you guys to hear it. So let's get to it. What's interesting to me is that like my path, it's been in so many different industries. And so like what I've been telling people is that like, while it might not have felt linear, it has all built on itself really organically. And so I think that like, 
you know, it's funny that this podcast is called No Straight Path, because I think that like what I have really been opened up to in my experience is the fact that, yeah, like I might not have had a path in the sense that it was like, oh, I did this and that naturally like led to this next step and then this next step because like it was linear. But I think it's like less than a path, but more of like a portfolio that I now have, like my professional portfolio is very varied, but it allows me to kind of pop into a lot of different spaces and like really have a nicely well-rounded skill set, which I didn't think I was looking for because I was like, I'm coming out of law school. Like I, I didn't pay for my skill set now, (laughs) you know, but it really introduced me to this idea of like constantly evolving and being able to kind of like gather different types of information and skills and just overall experiences to round out who you are as just a freestanding individual less about kind of like what you've done along your individual professional path. And so, yeah, the moral crisis of being like, oh, I don't want to do tech M&A. I want to do things that are helpful that, you know, pivoted me to social entrepreneurship, which pivoted me to basically like a tech nonprofit that was like a tech company that was mission driven, you know, really allowed me to start feeling more like myself in terms of feeling like there was an alignment between the, the work that I was doing and the person that I was. So long story short is I ended up working there for a year for my fellowship. And then at the end of that year, which was a really wild year, we had done like different accelerators like Y Combinator and we gotten different like New York Time Awards, like it really blew up. And so actually by the end of my fellowship, we were liquid enough for me to actually stay on as a regular employee. Like we were blowing up to the point where we were actually stable. So I actually ended up staying at that company a little bit longer than my fellowship until we reached full automation, meaning like we knew that we didn't need basically an attorney sitting back there checking the software anymore. And they started hiring out their in-house staff. So like it started working out. And then from there, I basically thought again, I will say that like the most interesting piece of, I think this chapter is the foresight that I had, like they didn't really have any money coming in. Right. And so it was kind of like, it's not like I could negotiate for higher salary or anything like that. It was pretty fixed. And so at that point it was like, a lot more about thinking creatively about what other things of value I would like to make myself feel secure. And so at that time, it wasn't going to be salary based, right? Like it was kind of like, I'm making basically slightly more than I made as a teacher. (laughs) Like Totally fine. I basically took a 75% pay cut, but I wanted to invest in the future version of me, knowing what it felt like to kind of sit for a few months and be like, oh my God, am I financially stable? All of those things. So the only thing I included in my contract when I was signing on to like kind of go on this adventure with them was that whenever they realized that like, you know, they wouldn't need my role anymore, that they would basically keep me on payroll for three to four months after that decision was made. And so basically I built in another window where I would be able to think very intentionally about what I wanted to do. So when that day came and we finally had that conversation, it triggered that kind of line in my contract. And so I basically had another three to four months of still kind of like receiving my regular checks and everything, but I didn't have to work. And so I think buying myself that sabbatical was also really key because it allowed me to once again, ask questions as like this current version of myself and make sure that whatever I was stepping into reflected everything that I internalized from what I'd experienced already. And I think that that piece of it is so important to my story, more so than like what I've actually done. But I think it's like giving myself the space and the time, buying myself the time to really think about who I am in the present and like what has happened to me and like what I've experienced so that I can actually make decisions as that person. I think so often we get so caught up in terms of like these five-year plans and these 10-year plans and like, you know, blah, 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 blah. And my argument 
has really become, you know, like, how do you plan for a person you haven't yet become? It's very difficult, right? Like, and I think that's how people end up waking up 10 years down the line. And they're like, is this my life? You know what I mean? Like, is this really what I thought it would be? And it's like, not their fault. It's just because like, so often you're deprived of the opportunity and the time to just think about who you actually are now. And it's more so you're still living a model based on a past version of yourself. And you haven't been given the opportunity to kind of take stock of where you actually are and make adjustments to where you actually want to be. And so I think that building that into all of my decisions has been really key in me being able to have the confidence in myself to hop industries and to be able to see the organic connective tissue between jobs that wouldn't necessarily have been obvious to me if I was just thinking about what a career path should look like. Wow. Another one. That makes sense. Yes. I definitely understand what you're saying. And I really do love that. And I think that it's so important that we get to a place in our culture where we allow people to take time where we normalize sabbaticals. I think what often happens, and it's happened in my circumstance, like perhaps there's a family health issue, an individual health issue. Something happens in your personal life where people have to take time away. And that's where you have these pivotal moments. That might be job loss. And I wish it just could be you know, written into your contract or it can be something that we essentially make normal make it a part of the way that we move forward and the way that we work in society because taking that time will allow people to live a more purposeful life, a life that's more aligned with the way that they want to live their life, essentially. I think that's so wonderful that you had that time. And I'm just really curious about how those couple of months of taking that time to think, how that led you to the next step in your journey. I mean... I wish I could say that it's like basically all I had to do was get still and then it became exceedingly obvious to me what the next step was. Like it really isn't the situation. Like that's not, that has not been my experience in those spaces. What I have learned and what what feels more typical to me is that like it's in those spaces that I know that I realize what I don't want to do. That's the first thing. But like whether or not that time is like, oh, I obviously want to do this. That has not been my experience at all. And it's more so been about me being really clear about what I don't want to do and then just being open to the way in which like things come into me and like, you know, and like hearing the different opportunities out, if that makes sense. So during those few months after Upsolve, when I left the tech company, that was what it was called. I basically I went to a random alumni event for Harvard Law School. And I I bumped into this woman and we literally started talking because she had a really dope kind of like rogue-esque kind of streak in her hair. And I was just like, you know, just a fabulous like black lady. Like she was just like, just awesome. We got to talking and she was like, oh, you know, like let's have coffee, da, 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 da. We had coffee maybe a week later. And I was telling her about the work that I was doing just coming out of Upsolve. And she was basically the executive director of the DC Bar Foundation, which was essentially, you know, the bar organization that helps fund basically public interest oriented endeavors in DC. And long story short, I was telling her about my work at Upsolve and how it was not only groundbreaking, but should be applied to so many other spaces in terms of like social justice, social legal justice, you know, where it's like, you know, why is it that people can be too broke to file for bankruptcy? Like, how is it that like in terms of a system like that is appropriate? And another space that I thought was really important in addition to say like immigration or whatever was actually expungement, right? This idea about like just your civil legal rights and people not having access to regular civil legal rights. And so 
long story short, she was like, oh, it's so weird that you say that because we've actually been trying to like look for different opportunities in the city to invest in, you know, automatic expungement, but like haven't really come upon anything like substantial. And so long story short is they ended up hiring me as a consultant for the city to liaise on behalf of DC Bar Foundation and to liaise with DC Bar Foundation, well, on behalf of DC Bar Foundation with DC City Council and the DC court systems to basically explore what the viability of creating automatic expungement in Washington, D.C. would look like. So I actually spent a summer as just a working for myself, essentially, and like technically like working on a contract on behalf of D.C. Bar Foundation, but it kind of just rolled into that. And so while I was still kind of like technically on my payroll for Upsolve, I also started working just like as an individual and like getting an experience in terms of what it's like to work as a 1099 versus like a W-2, which is like also I think a bit disorienting for people who have constantly like been paid by a larger institution and just trying to figure out like, you know, oh, like, how does this work? Like, what does my money actually look like? You know, did they withhold? You know what I mean? Like, it's just all those questions. So I did that for a summer. And literally, as that was coming to an end, I was so anxious because I was like, I still don't have an idea of what I want to do next. Like, I think there were parts of me at that age that was frustrated because I had a sense of a life I wanted to live, but I didn't necessarily have a vision for it. If that makes sense, like we get so caught up in like being able to see exactly what you want and how you want to live and like what you want to do. But that hasn't been my experience. I haven't necessarily been able to say like, oh, I'm going to be X, Y and Z when I quote unquote grow up or, you know, like it was more so I have an intuitive sense that there is more that I can contribute to the world even though I don't know exactly what my particular gift is and I don't exactly know what my contribution is. And I feel like I always empathize with people in that space, you know what I mean? Versus like people who are like, oh, I know definitively that I want to, I don't know, be a basketball star or I want to be like, I don't know, I'm a black woman. So like black Martha Stewart, or, you know what I mean? Like I am always so jealous of people who see exactly who it is that they want to kind of grow into And I just don't know that I've ever had that. Mine has always been like, I have a sense of like the capacity building and the moral consciousness that I want to have as a person and what I want people to walk away feeling like when they interact with me. But I don't necessarily know like what my ideal position or job or service is to the world. And I think that that's something that I've always found to be frustrating. And I think I still struggle with that as I kind of like continue to go along my little squiggly yellow brick road. I love that. And I I guess I'm wondering, first of all, that's great that you share that because I actually think a lot of people are in your position. And sometimes people just are on this path because it's just set up for them and they think this is what they want to be and they get there and they may not be happy or they just don't have the time and space to think about what might be next and they just need to basically pay their bills. And so I think probably a lot of people could relate to where you're at. Like a lot of people aren't born. I mean, I was born, I guess, saying I wanted to be a lawyer and do all these things because I was just that weird kid. But (laughs) we still- One of the kids. (laughs) One of the kids. But I would love to know in what job thus far you felt your happiest and your truest self, if any. Yeah, totally. So I think- Before law school, it's a perfect question to segue to your previous question, too. So before law school, my most ideal job was actually as a teacher. 
absolutely like even though I don't know kind of like what the middle piece of my professional arc looks like I have a sense that like this ends with me going back and being some type of professor or teacher or whatever like I love interacting with people I love fanning their flames so to speak and I that's one of the roles that I felt the most aligned and most like of use to you know more than just myself so for sure post-law school it was the job that I actually ended up getting right after I finished consulting. So that's why it's a perfect segue. And I think it was working on the Elizabeth Warren presidential campaign during the primary of 2019 and 2020. That is the job that to date has transformed so many things about how I even know myself to be as a person. And so long story short is I basically, someone tried to recruit me to work on a different presidential campaign. I'm not going to say which one because it's just like, it's not necessary, but like on a different presidential campaign. And it was one of those things where I wasn't really that enamored by the candidate. And I also was like, politics, I haven't been in politics before, you know, and that's before I understood that like politics really does draw in just different types of people. And so I ended up reaching out to Professor Mann, who is Senator Warren's husband. And I usually don't tell this part of the story, but I think it's important for this podcast to say it. And so he and I had had a close relationship when I was in law school. He was a mentor of mine. And I basically told him, hey, like, you know, you obviously have some insights because your wife is running for president right now. But like this campaign trying to recruit me and I've just basically realized that if I'm going to do something like this, which is very disruptive to any type of lifestyle working on a political campaign, then I would definitely want to work more so for a candidate that I like, you know, align with. And so for me, it was his wife, Senator Warren. But I also said, I don't necessarily know that that's like the case, you know, and that I want to do that. But if something comes up, you know what I mean? Let me know. And I'm more than happy to kind of help. And so that was the end of it. Right. And I think it was more so like in an ideal world, I would like to work for her. I basically shot my shot and said no pressure. But like I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that this is kind of where I come out on it. And if I do do a job like this, I would want it to be for Senator Warren, period. Hard stop. Like there was no ambiguity. He wasn't confused. Like we had that conversation. And so like that's how it went. And a few weeks later, I got a call and I had forgotten all about it. I figured, okay, they don't need me help. Like, you know, whatever. I'll stay in my lovely little apartment and be comfortable here in D.C. It's fine. But I got a call in the middle of the day on a Tuesday from the campaign manager. And he was basically like, hey, I know you've chatted with a few folks on the campaign. And I know you've talked about more like policy positions, which is what I thought, because it was kind of like she aligns with how I feel about, you know, a lot of different policies. And she was like the plans candidate. Right. And so it was like all the nerds like tended to really like Senator Warren. And so he was like, hey, like, I know you've reached out about more policy positions, but I'm actually calling you because I'm coming out of a meeting where we realize that we need to both create and fill a completely different position immediately. And I'm wondering if you would be interested in hearing me out about that. And I was like, oh, OK. You know, so again, it was like not what my plan was, not how I was thinking about it. And so long story short is they needed somebody to, what most people don't know is that there's like an actual mechanical technical piece to political campaigns. It's like, yeah, a lot of it is like being out in the field and like persuading people around your messages, but other parts are just very technical and you need just attorneys, I guess, to kind of do it. Long story short is they needed me to basically put her on the ballot in all the different states, territories, and regions. And like that requires you to interface with the individual states to figure out what they're going to require for her name to appear. And it's like, it depends depending on the state. And so it was her ballot access. And so he basically pitched that to me. And I remember saying to him, hey, that all sounds interesting. Like, I guess I can read state code and all that stuff. But like, I've never been in politics. You know what I mean? Like, 
I'm not an operative. Like, you know, I'm so sorry. I do bankruptcy filings. Like, do you really want somebody like me? You know, thinking like policy makes more sense. Like I come from a legal background, like I can read and write. I can help you guys write these plans. And he was like, yeah, no, this is really important. You know, and I said, I do bankruptcy filings. I can't do this. And he said, yeah, I need you to come file the bankruptcy candidate. Like what I'm asking you to do is that. And I think it was really interesting. And I tell that story because sometimes it just takes a difference in how you're looking at the situation to see the straight line that you actually can draw from what you're doing now to what somebody is asking you to do, you know? And I think so many times we think because it's not the line that we had initially in our mind about how you would naturally make a step or pivot to another direction. It's like, no, there's often a lot more in common between where you are now and what you want to do, even if it feels like it's in a different industry or in a different space, like working at a startup and going to a political campaign are basically the same thing. Like it's a very amorphous structure. You know what I mean? It's very like you kind of have to just own your work and like be able to plug in. And so going from that to the campaign was very easy. And I really did just have to continue doing filings, but just instead for the bankruptcy candidate. (laughs) And so it was really interesting. But working for her. Yeah, working for her was a life-changing experience in terms of like the intellectual rigor, the moral compass, and the idea of really challenging yourself to hold line for an idea of better, even if it might not necessarily be immediately possible. And having the internal capacity to be bold enough to have a vision for society that's better and more inclusive. And also like, I hate the word scrappy, but like the scrappiness to kind of do the work in the present to help bring that forth eventually. I've realized that sometimes your role is about helping to build a world that you won't really see. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what I learned on that campaign, even though I do see that world. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's so great. Okay. So many notes in my head that I want to shout out really quick. Shout out first to Professor Mann, because how great was that connection and him being a mentor? He literally wrote every letter of recommendation for me that I've needed in my life and has been such a great resource. So I love that he was able to, you know, put you on this path. So I think it's just wonderful. And I also love the class that he provided on just the, we did the normal property law, obviously, that you have to do in first year curriculum, but that specific, I'm not sure if you remember, it was maybe one week of classes just about the 2008 crisis and about the effect of the wealth gap on the Black community. And it just brought so much historical context to the classroom that I just didn't see in other law classes, especially in our first year curriculum. So makes sense that he's married to Elizabeth Warren and that he would bring that class, (laughs) bring that substance to the class. But that was just a side note. I never actually Uh, had him as a professor, which was really interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Oh, Wow. Okay. As a professor, I'm not going to lie. He's a little scary when it comes to the cold calls. He would call on me every week, like twice a week. Min, Miss Minzies, what are the facts of the case? Miss Minzies, you know, but we got over that and it's great. Uh, (laughs) But yeah. And the other thing I wanted to point out that I love, I love that you talked about how you don't know how your path is going to connect until Mm -hmm. it does essentially. And to really just follow your intuition and to be open to conversations with different people, I think is wonderful. And imagining a world that you may not Mm -hmm. see. I think that that's something that's really challenging for a lot of people to do. And I'm starting to open my mind up as well, because I'm just so practical Mm -hmm. 
And I want to be able to solve the problem now, or I want to be able to put on whatever band-aid we can put on now, because I'm looking at the actual issue today. And I think it's important that we have both ways of thinking. Like, let's think about how we can address issues now, but understand that it's probably a band-aid. So how can we reimagine systems to really create a better Mm -hmm. world for tomorrow? And it's something that I think Gen Z is really thinking about. I think it's entering the conversation a little bit more now with policing and with candidates like Elizabeth Warren's campaign. Like, I'm really happy that that rhetoric is becoming more pervasive in society. So I think that that's wonderful that you were able to do that work. And yeah, it was in terms of a group of people who were just all so different and so unique, but also so thoughtful and so hardworking and so like heart centered. It was a really incredible experience. It's it's a lot of really, really hard work and it's a lot of really long days. And I don't think that anybody who, especially who was on the Warren campaign joined because they felt like obviously people will vote for her and she'll win. You know, I think everybody who was on that campaign was very clear eyed about, you know, like some of the challenges that she would encounter as a candidate, both by virtue of how progressive she is and also by virtue of the fact that she's a woman. And still, despite that, I think all of us showed up every single day so proud and so committed to doing that work specifically for her, specifically in that time that she graduated an entire class of political operatives that I think went into other spaces following that campaign and especially walking into a pandemic really you know, kind of like built Ford tough, if you want to say, you know what I mean? Like definitely built to do hard work for the long term. And so I'm really excited about the people that I know who are working in this space, who are really committed to helping to build a new world. And so I'm excited to see what that nets out as, as we kind of climb out of this pandemic and live in this political climate that none of us have really seen before. But I do still harbor a lot of optimism about what's possible and who is still committed to holding the line right now who we've got on our side. That's amazing. And I would just love to know one example of an issue that you would love to solve and what's possible with regard to that issue. Could be like housing or immigration. What is your passion when it comes to this kind of work? Well, selfishly, even though this is not my main issue, selfishly, it's well, student debt is like the one that I'm going to say for myself because I think it's just ridiculous. But I think writ large, it's poverty. Poverty, financial insecurity, like that is the one that touches everything else. It touches food insecurity. It touches, you know, your social mobility. It affects home ownership. It affects the economy. It affects communities. It affects education. You know what I mean? Like poverty to me is the most unacceptable aspect of society. And the, the fact that we allow a level of money to be involved in our world that, you know, doesn't necessarily end up accessing the spaces that we need to access. And so the way in which we've allowed people to be financially vulnerable and to deprive people of the opportunity to build the life that they want to live is something that I will forever not understand. And I will work for the rest of my life to try to make sure that people do, in fact, get that opportunity. I love that. Let's do it together because that's actually something I'm really committed to. I've been really thinking about my purpose and what kind of causes that I want to push forward. And poverty is the one, as you said, that touches everything. When I think about the things that I really care about, it's when you have economic resources, whatever challenge you're hit with, it's challenging, but like it's always even more challenging when you're in poverty. 
Totally. It just makes it 10 times worse. When I think about healthcare, with so many different issues, I'm really interested in universal basic income initiatives. And there's a lot of great programs out there. So this is going to be like third podcast that we'll do one day and we'll bring everybody in. We'll bring Mike Tubbs. There's somebody else doing some really great work now in LA. I'll get his name, but he's coming from like a business perspective. But I think it's an issue I really want to tackle. So I love that. I love that. That's something it's really important to you. So yeah, no, I think the reason why I choose poverty is because I think it ties to like the larger theme, which is like my goal in life is to help people see the agency that they have in their own life. And I think that's also like a lot of like why you started a podcast like this. You know what I mean? It's tragic. It's heartbreaking to me when people feel like they don't have choice, you know, or a voice in what their own life is and what their own path is. And so, you know, often that's tied to not having financial resources and not being, you know, feeling like you have the latitude to go and pursue different opportunities. And then sometimes it's like, even when you do have the financial resources, maybe you're trapped in a job that pays you a lot of money, but you know what I mean? But you don't feel like you have the option to call an audible, you know? So it's like, it's not just about a certain profile of person. It's about the fact that I think we all naturally have an instinct hardwired into us to try to pursue and ultimately achieve a more expanded version of our lives. Amazing. Yet again, (laughs) I would really love to know about maybe a little bit of the work that you're doing now, but really just like your hopes and dreams for the future. And it might be tied into the work that you're doing now. We probably should talk about that. (laughs) No, totally. And I think right before I get to what I do now, I think it's important to say that I, you know, to like the larger theme of this podcast is that I took my most recent sabbatical right before this job. And it was my longest one I've taken to date. After the 2020 election cycle, we came off the Warren campaign and I ended up working another job through the end of the general election. It was a really tough window of time, not only trying to kind of process the fatigue and the experience of the presidential primary, but walking into a pandemic and then walking into kind of like a George Floyd summer on top of an election that none of us were really that thrilled about, but having Trump in office and trying to figure out how to put Biden in office. It was a really complicated time. And I think that summer, summer 2020 was rough for everybody. But I know for me and myself, like that was a time when I really like, I realized that I would need to just digest some of it. So long story short is after that election, I actually ended up taking 365 days off. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And so that is where I took a year and really just granted again, because I had, you know, had the financial latitude, not a ton, you know what I mean? But enough to kind of like, just make it. And it was a really specific conversation I had with myself about prioritizing buying myself time versus buying myself security. And I realized that like a lot of the questions that I planned to ask myself, whether it was like in therapy or like even just me sitting on my deck again was, or a lot of the questions were about like the really hard stuff, you know, who do I want to be? What do I want to do? Even if I don't necessarily know what industry it is. And basically how do I avoid having a midlife crisis? Like basically I would prefer to have my midlife crisis at 31 and figure it out versus to wait until I needed to like also you know, pay tuition for kids and stuff like that. So I took 365 days off and then I ended up working now at Emily's List, where I am the program director for independent expenditures, which basically means that I am the deputy director of the super PAC that's tied to Emily's List, which is called Women Vote. Wonderful. Wonderful. And can you tell someone like me who doesn't really know what that means, (laughs) the kind of work that you do? 
Yeah, no, totally. I barely knew what it meant when I first kind of was introduced to the position, you know, and at that point I was still very disillusioned by politics and kind of was like, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. But long story short is it basically builds off skills that I used in my previous job of like looking at things on a national level, but also on a very, very granular kind of congressional district level. And we basically help support pro-choice Democratic women who are running up and down ballots across the country get into office. And so Emily's List is the largest national resource for women in politics. And so our super PAC basically supports the work that Emily's List does by running programs that help candidates that align with our values get into office. And it runs the spectrum of the political spectrum. So from like more kind of traditional, more establishment candidates all the way through more progressive candidates, just depending on where they're running and what part of the ticket they're running in. But what's interesting to me is that not only is it mission oriented and also requires a lot of analytical skill, but it is coming in a moment where I think that I never expected to work at a super PAC in an era, you know, that is like about pro-choice women in an era when the Supreme Court is likely to gut row this summer. And so the serendipity of like now, once again, like it's like, oh, I happen to end up on a presidential primary and now I happen to end up at this PAC that's specifically around this issue. I think it's really interesting because you're thinking about politics through a gendered lens. And then like you also then are forced to think about it through an intersectional lens. And especially in this political moment where I think we've all been a little bit chin checked by what our party system looks like and like, you know, how politics in terms of it can be a little bit performative, you know, really looks. I think it's been great to get an opportunity to kind of be at the forefront of a conversation that like, unfortunately, we're likely going to continue having, especially like once the court comes down this summer. Yeah. Wow. Such important work. So timely that you're in this position. I would love to know about what you might, it just seems like you're going to squiggle more. Like I don't see Kristen Turner staying (laughs) in a job for 10 years or plus. Have you, have you thought about What might be next? And do you have hopes and dreams for the future? It's a great question. I think it's a question that I get the most. And I think I obviously it's a question that I think about, but I I haven't really considered. And I think that's just me. I mean, I think the benefit of having the path that I've taken is I think what it does is it again, like from the beginning, it really teaches you how to be your own teammate. And so I think I've lost a lot of the fear I have about like not being able to see the next step. And I've also grown a lot in what my own professional voice is. And so you know, even before I took this job, like there was a lot of negotiating back and forth between my boss, my now boss, you know, about what the expectations were, what the boundaries were, you know, and I think that like, I don't necessarily know what I'll do next, but I think because I trust myself so much that I'm not concerned about it. And I think that's kind of like the moral of the story is like, I'm in a position where I really trust myself with my life. And I think that like, we're not often given the tools to build up that confidence because it's so much about like, you have to follow this path, you know, you have to follow these rules. And if you don't, everything could go off the hinges. And I'm in a position where I'm like, I've seen things go off the hinges. I have technically experienced what I previously would have called my rock bottom, but it's in that space where you kind of really get to see that, okay, like I woke up and I'm still in one piece. You know what I mean? And it's like, is rock bottom really rock bottom? Like, you know, maybe depending on how you define it, but I think that I have discovered a level of fortitude within myself that really knows that I'm both capable and about to go on the adventure of my life. Wow. Ah, another one, another one. Okay. So (laughs) I will really actually like to hear a little bit more about that space where you were at rock bottom. Can you 
Tell us more about that. Like, how did you climb out of that? Yeah, no, 100%. So like, it's weird because rock bottom, it was rock bottom based on how I've been told to define rock bottom. It's like, oh, you're not working. You know what I mean? We were in the middle of pandemic. So I was like home with my family. You know what I mean? But like in, in a previous world, it was kind of like, I've had my own apartment. And I've been working these jobs. And it's kind of like the check boxes. They're the boxes that I normally would check. I couldn't check. But what I realized is that I had everything that I literally absolutely needed, right? You know what I mean? Like I had the emotional security in terms of feeling like, okay, like I'm doing okay. Like I can feed myself today. You know what I mean? Like we're fine. It's not like I'm starving. And I also had the community of people around me, you know, and really got to spend time and like be present in who has made me me. You know what I mean? But also at the same time, I I had a lot of opportunities to go back and talk to the people who I have known the longest and really update a lot of those friendships and those relationships, you know, because sometimes I think that like the people we have around us, because they've known us for so long, sometimes they even have fixed understandings of like who we are and who we should be. Right. And so I really got to push back on all of that and kind of create space in my life for like people to see me as who I've become when I've been in a different city or like, you know, or, or had these new experiences. And so it really was about level setting on all fronts and making it so like I felt comfortable in my life as is. And I didn't feel like I needed something else to feel more complete or feel like I had more value. And so like that was what rock bottom was. Rock bottom is like you don't have the things that you you have typically hung your little identity hat on. And so when you're left, when you're stripped of all of those things, like you really get a second to be like, well, who am I and what actually defines me? And I think once you get into that space, you're so much less tethered to outside situations or outside input because you're like, ah, none of that really actually tips the scale in terms of me knowing who I am at the end of the day, what I actually care about and all the other extra stuff can come like, you know, the jobs, the money, the trips, the whatever, you know what I mean? But like, it is so abundantly clear to me that those are just the cherries on top that I'm not afraid of not being able to have those things as I move forward in my life, even though I plan to. Yeah. Oh, that's so wise. I definitely, that all resonates with me, especially when I lost my job and just, I had to rethink Mm -hmm. everything. Like I remember I didn't want to go to a party in San Francisco area because I would run into all of my Stanford friends and I'd have to tell them like, I'm not working right now. So I didn't go. And I, I, there was so much shame attached to that. And I had to just unlearn so many things. I'd learned so much of my Mm -hmm. work was tied to my title. Mm -hmm. And now that I have whatever title back, it's like, that's not how I define myself, which is so nice. So I had to go through that, but I still had the same thing, those resources, like family, my partner, that inner joy, that time to actually just, like you said earlier, get back to yourself reading. I discovered so many things in that rock bottom time period that have made me the woman that I am today. And so I certainly wouldn't trade it. I love that you share that. I know you've shared so many gems already and so many lessons learned already during this conversation and part one, but I really would love just to know if you had any other lessons that you'd want to share with the world. (laughs) That's overwhelming. Lessons. I mean, again, I think I'm definitely still learning as I go. The lessons that I have, or at least like what I've picked up so far are, you know, things that I've said, like, it's really hard to plan for a person you haven't yet become. And I think that like really, truly doing that work has been key to me being able to live a life that is interesting to me. And that I feel that I actually have the responsibility over, you know what I mean? Like, I've loved that. 
you know, trusting yourself with your life. I think it's just like, we have to give ourselves the space to like, be like, okay, I trust myself with my life. And I think we also have to trust our loved ones with their lives. You know what I mean? Especially women, like we do a lot of polling, right? Like, Hey, this is what I'm thinking. Like, what do you think? What would you do? Da, da, da. You know, and that's great. Like in terms of getting the feedback, but I think it's like, sometimes that poll transitions into more of like a tribunal where you kind of outsource decisions for your life to the people that, you know, you love the most. And like you, that, you know, obviously know that care about you, but at the end of the day, like, I think I had to start learning. I need to walk that back. I need to more so like understand where I come out on something first before I kind of share it with my immediate circle. So I know that it's my voice that I'm hearing and not just the distilled opinions of others. That's so great because I think that's something that you said earlier when it but it was in a different context. It was regarding, you know, your career and reaching out to different people and having different discussions. But you said that a lot of it became noise. Like some of it was helpful, but some use this word noise. And I think that is something that's really stuck with me because you can be overwhelmed with so many different yeah. opinions. And so it's really important to listen to your mm-hmm. inner voice, get that outside advice, get that perspective, but understand where you come out on it. And I, it will make decision-making easier. (laughs) It'll make life less stressful. I feel like I can get pulled in so many different directions on certain decisions when I talk to a million people about it and I go back and forth. And when I started to just trust myself, things started to make sense. So I think that that's wonderful advice. I think this has just been such an amazing conversation, Kristen. I appreciate you so much. I usually end it with final thoughts, but I feel like I don't know if you have any, because I felt, I don't know, you just had so many gems. So no worries if you don't. (laughs) No, I mean, my final thoughts are like, figure out how to be your own best teammate. There's nothing more important than like your mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical hygiene. I heard a quote that basically was like, you can't plan an inspired life. And to me, that has been like a huge mantra. And I think that it's just like the more that I have let life surprise me, I've realized that I would have been miserable if I had lived the life I planned. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share this episode with friends and family. And if you like what you hear, please go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to rate the show. It helps other listeners find No Straight Path. Let's spread the message, everyone, and make sure that millennials feel less alone. There's no straight path in your career and life, and that's okay. It's honestly what makes the journey exciting. So let's get inspired together. I hope you have a great week.